This week, we're gonna continue the Seek First book that Josh and I studied together. Um, Josh shared a couple weeks ago, and um, I'm gonna continue on with that this week. Um, and this week, uh, the book is called Seek First by Jeremy Treat, and, and it's how the kingdom changes everything. It's given us the kingdom perspective on our life. A couple weeks ago, Josh uh, defined the kingdom and the king, Jesus Christ. The kingdom is God's reign over God's people in his place. Then he gave an excellent overview of the kingdom perspective, which is, if the kingdom matters, everything matters. And that's how the kingdom can invade our work, our play, our family, and our church. This week, um, going to the next slide, we're gonna talk about the kingdom purpose. And the kingdom purpose is really simple. I have the simpler message of the two or the three that we're gonna do. The kingdom purpose is very simple, to follow Jesus. Um, There's a, a... Quoted a Christian writer who died around 140 AD. His name is Ignatius of Antioch. He wrote, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so as long as I attain to Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is the kingdom purpose. It's what we were made for. It's not just the purpose of the kingdom. It's the purpose for our existence. But it's foreign to the earthly purposes so many pursue today, even some of the more popular preachers. Prevalent today is a different driving force, which Jeremy Treat calls the gospel of self-trust. To make the point, the author quotes several celebrities who've been asked to speak at commencement ceremonies. Ellen DeGeneres is quoted as saying, my advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything else will be fine. Mario Batali, who's celebrity chef, said, Follow your own truth, expressed consistently by you. Lastly, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Anna Quinlan said, listen to the word, how many times your is in here. Honor your character, your intellect, your inclinations, and yes, your soul by listening to its clear, clean, clear voice instead of following the muddied messages of a timid world. The take-home messages from these commencement addresses are, you are special, trust yourself, be true to yourself. It rings through our culture with a clear message. Follow your heart, make a name for yourself, build your own personal kingdom where you are on the throne of, of your own destiny. But the kingdom Josh and I have been studying and is described by Jesus in his own words. In the book of John, um, which I tried to squeeze in, the, the, it's in its entirety into the Easter message. Um, Jesus, is betrayed, um, Jesus has been betrayed. He's arrested. He's interrogated by Caiaphas. And then he's sent back to Pontius Pilate. And he's being questioned by Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate just keeps asking him, are you a king? He wants to know, are you a king? Are you claiming that you're a king? So then in context, that puts it in context. We'll start in John 18, 33. Then Pilate went back to his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked him. Jesus replied, is this your question or did others tell you about me? And Pilate retorts, am I a Jew? Your own people and your leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And then Jesus answered him with these words. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders but my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said, so you are a king. And the barb taught very well on this. He said, yeah, I'm a king, but I'm not that kind of king. 
Much of John's gospel before that described what Jesus said to the disciples before he was crucified. And much of it described a kingdom way, the kingdom purpose. Lay down your life as I have. Love as I have loved you. I have washed your feet. Do that for each other as I've done for you. The message of Jesus' kingdom is way different than earthly kingdoms, whatever they are. Um, the next slide says, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to the disciples, if any, any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Other versions say, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. If you're trying to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge people according to their deeds. And listen to verse 28. I tell you the truth, some standing right here, right here now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Son of Man's coming to bring his kingdom, and we're going to see it. You have to look beyond yourself and anything in this world. You have to strive to be a part of something bigger, because that is your desire whether you know it or not. Everything you've been trying in life to fill that void in your life has been inadequate. Look to Jesus Follow Jesus. This call come, comes right from Jesus' introduction of his kingdom in Mark's account. The next slide, in, in context, John has been arrested. Jesus comes to Galilee proclaiming the, the gospel of God, and this is how he did it. In Mark 1, 15, he says, The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your, repent of your sins and believe the good news, the gospel. So he's tying the kingdom to the gospel. If you want to be in the kingdom, you got to know the gospel. You got to be part of the gospel. And then he goes on to the call in verse 16. One day Jesus walking along the shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net in the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. You see, it's not a, it's not a call to, to, to um, make a one-and-done decision, to make a decision in an event, to, make, to give your heart to Jesus. The call is to enter the kingdom. Josh covered this in his part where he talked about the evidence of kingdom in his life and every aspect of his life. We're called to begin an adventure of a lifetime, an adventure for all time. We are called to be disciples. In the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called Christians three times. They're called believers 15 times, and they're called disciples 235 times. They mean it when they say we're supposed to be disciples. Well, what does disciple mean? Disciple's not necessarily a religious word. It's not a, um, Confucius had disciples. Plato had disciples. When I define what a disciple is, you're going to think of earthly kings that have disciples right now. You may have been one of them. To be a disciple, you follow someone to be with them. You learn from them and you become like them. So, if we're to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be with Jesus. Um, in context, um, Philippians 3, 7 through 9, I don't have all these verses up here. You can take notes and, and look them up later, or you can follow along with me. I once thought these things were valuable, and he's talking, but this is Paul speaking to the Philippian church, and he's talking, when he said these things, he means what it took to be a good Jew. He was a great Jewish Pharisee. He was a successful Jewish Pharisee. And he's talking about all these things that he was before he met Jesus Christ. And he said, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing with, of knowing, being with, I have in parentheses, Jesus Christ my Lord. 
For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could attain Christ and be one with him. As a true disciple, you're going to get to the point where you love Jesus and want to be with Jesus more than you want his blessings. And that's when you know you're truly growing as a disciple. Too often, especially in the early years, we want his benefits without the commitment. We want his healing without his lordship. Uh, Barb talked about that when she spoke before. Having Jesus be your, your example and your provider, but not being lord of your life. If you're doing that, if you're thinking about it that way, Jesus is not your savior, he's your stepping stool. You're not worshiping him, you're using him. See, he, he's not the means to the goal, he is the goal. Our first call is to Christ himself, to know him and love him and be with him. And by the way, it's not a, it's not a one and done, check the box deal. It's not where you just sign up and you're on and you, uh, Randy used to call it fire insurance. It's not just that. Jesus is working, he's moving, he's not bound by history. His intent and methods are spelled out in the scripture. He started ushering in his kingdom over 2,000 years ago, and, he, and the renovation project is still underway. His kingdom project involves um, these things. It seeks and saves the lost. It brings mercy and justice. It displays the glory of God in everything, every part of our lives. And he gifted you to have a major role in it. He says, follow me. That's not, you're not joining a club. You're jumping on a moving train. You gotta buy into the kingdom mission where he's on the throne. If he's not on the throne, your throne will not stay empty. Something else will take its place and often it's yourself. Jesus gets the lead. He sets the agenda. He is in control. He gets the final say. You have to take self off the throne. To say Jesus is Lord means I am not. And that's really hard for me. Number two is we have to learn from Jesus. Jesus called his disciples to be learners, but it's not about learning information to pass a test. It's not learning bullet points to share with a non-believer and defend your belief. It's about learning to love the way he loves. Genuine love does not come to us naturally. Even in our closest relationships, it's natural to tend toward a love that looks out for us at the expense of others, to look to God for your purposes, for his, your purposes instead of his. And we have to learn from Jesus' example and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love God and others unconditionally. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 is not up there, but I'll share it with you. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Other versions say, learn from me, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. They call Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. And when he says, let me teach you, or he says, learn from me, any rabbi could have said that, because rabbi means teacher. They were all qualified to do that. A rabbi would teach you, and they would quote, this, they would quote the law to you for every issue that you might want to learn about in that, that time. But Jesus took it another step. He took them to a higher learning than just learning the law. And, and I don't have this up here. But you know the Sermon on the Mount is all through Matthew 5. 
You have heard, and he says early in Matthew 5, you have heard it that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Up to that point, he's quoting the law, right? Then he says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. So what he's saying is, is the law is, you know, I'm, I know the law. I'm, I'm, the law is important, but it's not enough. We got to take the law another step. We got to go to a higher level of learning about the law. You have to learn what the law is in context of who Jesus is. And that's what he's sharing in the Sermon on the Mount. Another one, verse 27. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, quoting the law. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, he's teaching the law, but from a kingdom curriculum. He's teaching the law and attaching it to who Jesus is. To be a disciple is to learn constantly from Jesus through the scripture who God is and how to grow in character and then apply our faith to our work, family, and community. And then we look at the world from the kingdom perspective. We'll seek justice in a world where it seems like there is none. Jesus is our teacher, and he teaches us through his word by the Spirit, in the context of community. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Lastly, we have to become like Jesus. You know, if you spend enough time with someone, they start to rub off on you, right? I read one study that, that said married couples, after they spend enough time together, start to look alike. That frightens Allison a little bit, but I'm kind of looking forward to it, you know? <laughs> you laughing at me or tracking with me, <laughs> you know? Um, um, you can, re you can dispute that. But what you cannot dispute about is, is that those who hang out, out a lot say the same things. They do the same things. That's why we're so concerned about our, fr our children's friend choices is because you start to take on likeness of who you hang with. So it is with Jesus. If we spend time with him and learn from him, we become more like him. Jesus is his perfect role model. In John 13, 15, after washing their feet, Jesus said, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Jesus doesn't bail when things get tough. His words build up, they don't tear down. He works from humility. He puts others' needs before his own. He knew when to be firm, and he knew when to be gentle. He loved those who appear unlovable. Spend time with Jesus through the gospel. Let his grace transform you from the inside out. Let his Holy Spirit empower you to overcome sin and become more like our Savior. I'm going to take a little sidebar here on sin and overcoming sin. Often with sin, we accuse Satan of tempting us, or we, you know, the, the old uh, cartoons have Satan on one shoulder and the angel on the other encouraging you to do good or bad. Really, all sin is, is sin. If, if you have a sin problem, you really have a gospel problem because the gospel is understanding who Jesus is and becoming more like him. The areas where we put something else in place of that as our motivator is where sin comes from. When you have sin, you have, you, when you have sin that you can't overcome, you have a gospel problem, not necessarily a sin problem. For example, let me get back to the scripture. Um, so Paul made this clear in his first letter to the Corinthians church. Um, going to slide nine, Gerald. Um, th this church was having problems. They were dividing over their favorite teacher. They were deciding who, which teacher they liked, Dave or Aaron or Josh. Um, they were dividing over their favorite teacher. They were getting drunk during communion. They were overusing, <laughs> they were getting drunk during communion. One man was, he actually took his stepmother as his wife in this church. And Paul didn't send them books on unity, alcoholism, 
or sexual purity. He took them right back to the gospel. He knew they knew the gospel because he'd taught it to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters. So he's calling them brothers and sisters. They'd sinned, but they hadn't, they weren't not Christians anymore. They weren't not disciples anymore. Um, let, me, let me share with you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news, the gospel I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, you have it in your life, and you still stand firm in it. It is good news that saves you. You just need to remind yourself of it, right? To continue to believe the message I was told you, unless, of course, you'd believe something that was never true in the first place. He brought him back to, back to the gospel. If you're struggling with sin, you need to get back to the gospel and let it lead. We never stop learning about the gospel. You don't graduate from the gospel while we're here on earth. Don't stop applying gospel. Courage equip everyone you know to do the same. When we bury ourselves in the gospel regularly, we are spending time with him. We're being with him. We're learning from him, and we'll become more like him. And there's no place better to do that, to become equipped to do that, than the community, the kingdom church. The next part is seek community, the church and the kingdom. Communities are bound together by something in common. Think about that. Fans are bound by the team. That they vote. Voters are bound by their political beliefs or their party or their values. Activists are bound by a common cause. The church is united in Christ the King. They have Jesus in common. And the characteristics of, the, of, the, of Jesus' church, the community, the kingdom, is it's filled with people that would not otherwise associate. In our time, different ethnic groups, social classes, economic levels. In the early days, it was Jews and Gentiles. Slaves and free were all drawn together by community, young and old, male and female. I've noticed how many Christian community and his ministry often bond unlikely partners. It seems like God puts us with those we wouldn't normally hang with to accomplish his purpose. This was really true, uh, uh, proven true, and case in point was the fishing trip. Different and We're centered on Christ, so we have a mutual calling to one another. The church is the community of the king. The church is the kingdom, and the church is, the king, is not the kingdom, but the two are, dis, um, are distinct but related, right? The kingdom is God's reign over God's people and God's place, right? That has a lot to do with the church. But the church is the redeemed people of God, gathered by the gospel and organized by the scriptures, one day, the church will no longer exist like it does now in a fallen world. We won't need pastors to teach God's word. The word will speak for himself. We won't need the things that point to the Savior like counseling, church discipline, signs like baptism and the Lord's Supper. He will be in our eternal presence. He'll be in our eternal presence. We don't need those things to usher in his presence. It'll be there full time, 24-7. The church is provided as a mean for God's work in this present age, but one day will give way to the kingdom of God in all its fullness. Until then, the church is a preview of the kingdom, an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom. We talked about that in a previous message where the churches, we, you know, we have embassies all over the world. If you're in Honduras and you go to the American embassy, it's a, it, within those walls, it's, it's, it's under, you're in U.S. government territory. Same is true with the kingdom here. It's an instrument of God. 
Its purpose is to make disciples to represent kingdom in all the life where they work, live, and play, just like um, Josh shared. How does this work? We'll turn to Acts 1. Um, I don't have it up here, but just turn to Acts 1. I'll give you a minute to get there. So in the opening of Acts 1, Acts 1, chapter 1, Luke says, and Luke wrote Acts, right? So Luke says first, in my first book, I told you Theopolis, and his first book was Luke, okay? In my first book, I, I told you Theopolis about everything Jesus began to do and teach. And what he taught Jesus did and teach was Jesus led a perfect life. He led a sacrifice, had a sacrificial death, and then he had a victorious resurrection, Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving the chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. The further instructions were how to represent and advance Jesus' kingdom. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked with them about what they needed to know regarding the kingdom of God. Later in Acts, the kingdom was also preached by the apostles. Acts 8, 12, Philip preached the good news concerning the kingdom of God. Paul also preached the kingdom of God in Acts 19, 20, 28, and 31. In fact, the last two verses of Acts tell us that Paul remained two whole years in his own rented dwelling and welcomed all those coming into him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. In between that, the beginning and the end, is a whole bunch of instructions on how the church is supposed to function in advancing the kingdom. So I need to make one distinction here about the church. There's two types, of, there's two representations of the church. First is the church, the organized institution, right, of which we're a part of. It has a clear purpose, that's to make disciples. It has structures, elders and deacons and ministry leaders. It has sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, as well as practices, gathering together on Sunday, watching on live stream, um, following Christ together throughout the week as we're shepherded and equipped by the leaders. Then there's the organic community of the church that share in the mission and, and it extends into sending uh, disciples out into the world. Built up by the preaching of the word here, we're sent out as ambassadors of reconciliation and agents of peace. We're equipped by our leaders here to be disciples of Christ, to seek uh, to love the neighbors, serve in the community, um, through their vocations and through volunteer activities. We're supposed to show compassion to the poor and the marginalized. We're supposed to witness through the grace of God in Christ. We're supposed to be encouraged by one another as we're sent out to be salt and light in the places God has called us to and witnesses in the kingdom. Everything we touch should give someone a glimpse of the kingdom and what Jesus is like. There's another analogy for me that really brings out Jesus' love and goals for the church that Jeremy Treat barely touches on and is only found a few places in Scripture, and that is the church as the bride of Christ. If you indulge me, I'll spend a few minutes on that. Um, slide 10 has um, Ephesians 5, 25, so some scriptural basis to the, the uh, bride uh, metaphor that I'd like to carry out. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present to the church himself in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He's clearly talking about the church as his bride. 
Revelations 19, 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, For I feel divine jealousy for you, the church, since I betroth you to one husband, Jesus, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. For this analogy to have impact, can we just take a minute and look at the Jewish wedding uh, 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 traditions of Jesus' time? Um, Jewish wedding traditions at the time of Christ are a fascinating study topic, and there's lots of parallels between those and, custom, uh, and, and customs and Christian theology. I'm not going to go into all of them, but I have highlighted a few. Step one of, of the Jewish wedding tradition is the betrothal or, or dedication part. The bride, and those of you kind of lean toward the, the feminist side, bear with this. This is Jewish tradition a long time ago. The bride is acquired by the groom. Uh, you can say pursued if it feels better. The groom is leaving his father's home and traveling to the bride's home to purchase her for a price. The groom gives a token or a dowry, and its value must be known to the bride. In all cases... The wife can only be acquired with her consent. Um, the marriage contract is called a ketubah. It's then established, and from that moment on the, bride, on, the bride is sanctified, or set apart exclusively for her bridegroom. It is customary for the groom and the bride to drink from a cup of wine, over which the betrothal benediction has been said. So, the point of this part the prenuptial process can be seen as symbolic of Christ's work on our behalf. Jesus, and these scriptures I'm going to rifle through pretty quickly. Jesus left the home of his father in heaven, traveled to the home of his prospective bride, earth, to purchase her for a price. That is his own blood. 1 Corinthians 7.23 states this. His bride has joyously consented to the match. He has given her a priceless token, the, token, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. With the establishing of the ketubah, the new covenant, Jesus' bride was sanctified for him, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. The communion wine is symbolic of the covenant by which Christ obtained his bride. So the two stages of the marriage are the betrothal, that's called the kedushin, meaning sanctified, and the consummation, that's nisuin, which means elevation. That kind of ties too, doesn't it? Kedushin it's not an engagement as we understand it. It is a binding agreement which the woman is legally considered the wife of the man. This is the period in which Mary conceived Jesus, by my understanding. It is routine in Jesus' day for the Caducian and Nisuin to be separated by as much as a year. This is about all the Greek you're going to hear from me today, okay? Um, during that time, the bridegroom would construct a marital home usually adding on to his father's house, right, where they were going to live once the... the um, Nisuin had occurred. And the bride would stay, that, stay pure and make herself ready for when the groom was coming back because she didn't know. It was not announced. This too can be viewed as a metaphor for spiritual truth. Think about it. After sealing the covenant with the church, Jesus ascended to his father's home to prepare a dwelling place for us. Just prior to his death, Jesus told my disciples, told his disciples, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me 
um, so that you may be where I am. That's John 14, 2 through 3. The church, the bride, the church then is the bride and is supposed to be making herself ready, right? And keeping herself pure. It is clear that if we apply this analogy to the church, the bride, we have now been in the 2,000 year betrothal period. How can we make her ready? How can we help her be ready? How can we keep her pure? Chuck Swindoll wrote a book back in the 90s called The Bride, and he covers this completely. I've read it a lot of times. I keep trying to give it away at garage sales, and it keeps coming back. So, um, he, but I've read this several times. He uses the letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, which makes four major points that give us an idea how the church can be ready, pure, and attractive for the groom to return. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, and now the word of the Lord, First uh, Thessalonians, they, they were on the right track. They were having an impact. That, so he, Paul had visited the church in Thessalonica, then he left for a while. And when he wrote back to them, he's kind of given them some marching orders because they started out on the right track. They were following the gospel. They were taking his teaching and applying it. In fact, he says this in First Thessalonians 1, and now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Acacia, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. If people are talking about you as a body in, in, in the area and beyond, that means we're, we're on track, right? That help, that's an indicator we're on track. Then in the second chapter of, of, of the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul tells them how to stay ready for the coming kingdom, the groom, how to stay attractive. So number one, um, slide 13, she must remain biblical. First Thessalonians 2 Two and four say this. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to your bodily, to your to, to you boldly, in spite of great opposition. So you can see where we're not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. We're staying with the gospel. And then verse four he says, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news, with the gospel. We started with the gospel, right? Then in Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9, he says, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Lastly, um, and then verse 8 and verse 9, he says, do you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. We let nothing get in the way of us preaching God's good news to you. Second point is we must be Authentic. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 and 6. Never once did we try to win you with flattery as well as, as you well know. And God is our witness. We were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. We were authentic. As for human praise, we never sought it from you or anyone else. We stayed true, authentic to the gospel. Number three, she must have grace. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. As apostle of Christ, we certainly had to write to make uh, demands of you. But instead, we were like children among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We were full of grace. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Lastly, um, we, it, she needs to be revel, relevant in approach. First Thessalonians 2, 12 and 13. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he has called you to share in his kingdom and glory. It's relevant for now. We have a part in his kingdom. It's supposed to be part of our lives. Therefore, and we never stop thanking God when you received this message. You didn't think our words.
mere human ideas. They were real, they were relevant, they were current. You accepted what we said, the very word of God, which of course is, and this word continue to work in those who believe. It stays relevant. We will know we're showing, the signs, we're showing the signs of a church where the bride is getting ready and staying pure and making herself attractive if we have more emphasis on content and less on cosmetics. We have more emphasis on depth and less on size. We're more interested in exalting Christ and less on ourselves. More reminders that church is people with eternal souls and not structures of steel. More involvement with the lost outside these walls, not just bringing people in to hear about Christ. More delight, fewer reminders of duty. More authenticity, less hypocrisy. More meaningful relationships, less, less lengthy meetings. That's not my point, that's Chuck's. So now back to our metaphor real quick. According to Jewish marriage law, when the time came for the Nisuin, the groom would return for his bride. The exact time of his arrival was not usually known. And you remember the, in Matthew 25, 1 through 15, the, story, the parable of the virgins that were supposed to keep their, their lamps lit until the groom came back. Well, they let him, let, let him run out of oil, and the, their lights, uh, lamps went out. So when they were going to get o- more oil and prepare themselves, the groom came back, and they were shut out of the, 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 the feast, the, the, the celebration. The groom's arrival will be announced with a shout. The church's bridegroom has been separated from his bride now for 2,000 years, and one day he'll come back and snatch her from the earth to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then together, then, we are, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord in our home in his kingdom forever. We do not know the day or time he's coming back for his bride, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's described in Revelation, it's gonna be a celebration, ushering in eternity, and nobody's gonna be in a hurry to leave. Jesus' first coming was prophesied 40 to 50 times in the Old Testament, but there are 100 prophecies about his second coming. Are we ready? Are we beautiful? Are we staying purely focused on his kingdom? Are you part of a community of believers bonded together by the gospel about the business of getting the bride ready? One of the most stated reasons for people not going to, our church, going to church today is the hypocrisy of the church or wounds received from the church. Randy Evers used to say, when someone would say to him, um, you know, only hypocrites go to church, he'd say, yeah, you're welcome, <laughs> you know, come on in. And, you know, it's true. There is, um, the greatest enemy of the church is not secular atheists or violent persecutors. It's hypocritical Christians. A point made several times, by the way, in the New Testament. It's not a new problem, is it? Many of the accusations are true. The church has been hypocritical. God's people often fail to represent the kingdom with love and grace. But the church is the bride of Christ. A community of recovering sinners. So before we write her off, consider we can't disrespect the bride without, affecting the, without, um, without offending the groom, Jesus. The church has had its problem. But the gospel doesn't need a PR campaign or a makeover. We need a church that reflects the beauty of the gospel through a life shaped by Jesus. So our kingdom purpose, be a disciple. Follow him to be with him. Learn from him and become like him. Our church, the church, needs to be the community of the kingdom. Um, We need to be a preview of the kingdom. We need to be an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom. We need to equip disciples to bring the kingdom kingdom where they work, worship, live, and play. 
Is the bride staying pure? Is she attractive? Is she biblical, authentic, full of grace, and relevant? Is she ready for the groom to come back? Let us be a kingdom community, because as we reflect the kingdom, we're closer to home, to the home we all long for. The home Jesus is preparing for us. You know, I probably exhausted the wedding bridegroom analogy or metaphor a little too much, maybe. Um, but let me close with another analogy that hits closer to home um, for my, me and my family. Um, let me take you on a trip back east with Dave, okay? See, I grew up back east, and uh, since 1979, I've lived in uh, the Midwest, Purdue, Mizzou, KC, and now and then in Harrisonville. I've made the trip back east across um, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania. I've made that trip literally hundreds of times. Allison has joined me since 1986. I'm giving away our age, but that's okay. Allison has learned, as I get, and I usually drive the majority of the trip. Allison has learned, as I get closer to home, I sit a little bit forward in the seat. I tailgate slower drivers <laughs> a little harder <laughs> than, I, than I would otherwise, and especially in the left lane. I turn off the radio because I don't want to hear any distractions. Um, Ty's gotten tired of it. He starts taking the last part of the drive nowadays when he goes with us. Um, without, getting a little gra- without getting graphic, if you can hold it, you need to during the last few hours of this trip. I'm nearing home, and I'm ready to get there. I will not, not be distracted. It's getting urgent. We're getting closer. We've been away from our home now. We're away from our true home right now. We weren't made for this fallen world. We were made for the kingdom. But we're getting closer, and we're never closer than when we're in community together. So when, we, um, when, we're, when we're, you know, we're together as homesick brothers and sisters that are longing for our true home, so when we come together, let's lean forward in our seats, get rid of the distractions, and get everybody else we can on board in the vehicle with us to feel our urgency and go with us. Let this house, God's house, be a house speeding headlong to the kingdom.